Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Muslim CEO show. This is the place for you to learn from amazing leaders that have done it so you can grow yourself and your organization. I'm your host Muhammad Arshid and your brother and today I'm honored to have with me Mr. Billion Dollar Muslim himself Khurram Malik. Assalamu alaikum bro. Wa alaikum assalam. How are you? I am good. So First of all, I just want to say, um, before I give Khurram's kind of uh, intro, we get deep into it. Um, Khurram is actually a friend of mine, and I'm honored to say that he's a friend of mine, mashallah. Um, you know, he is a business and behavioral strategist. He's an entrepreneur, and he's an author. And like I said, he's written this book called Billion Dollar Muslim, Why We Need Spiritually Inspired Entrepreneurs. So uh, me personally, I am really, really excited to be doing this because it's always fun to do these kind of things. Uh, with your friends and stuff. So Zakhla Khairbro for joining me today. You're welcome, um, bro. I'm telling you, uh, let me tell you why I'm excited to have you here, first of all, right? So Is I'm, it because I always buy you hot chocolates? Yeah, you know what? You, not only do you buy me you hot take chocolates, you take me to nice coffee shops. You take me to nice coffee shops, yeah. Did you, I think you offered me a dessert at that time. Anyway, let's not get into that. You can do that later, inshallah. So um, the reason why I'm excited to have you on specifically, bro, is because um, I think you're very unique, right? Um, and... Um, the reason why I think you're unique is because the way you think. It's it's quite different to uh, a lot of Muslims that I've met. Because, you, you you know, you get Muslims who are like very kind of Muslim-centric, very kind of, you know, a certain way. And then you get people who are very professional and they're very like corporate, corporate. and they're a sort, yeah. certain way, right? Uh, and for me, I've seen you like kind of bring the best of those worlds. And I think your experience is very unique as well. Like, you know, when we yeah. go into the story, you'll see that um, just the way you think is very, very different. And mm -hmm. I think that's really, really... Uh, important for other people to really get that perspective because I think that perspective will really, really, inshallah, help them. So, um, before we start, uh, I just want you to kind of uh, tell me a little bit about your story, tell me a little bit about uh, yourself. And like I said, I want you to go as deep as you want. You can start from when you were born and just, just tell me oh, a little bit about yourself. That's far back. <laughs> well, okay, I mean, I won't go that far back. Obviously, I was born, I was actually born in Bristol, but I was raised in Sheffield. So I was raised in the north of England. Um, just normal, typical working class family. You know, my, my dad had, my mom was a teacher. My dad had a, um, he was initially working in the factory and then he got a council job. And, you know, money was always a struggle. Um, and I, my mum had come over from Pakistan when we got married, uh, when she got when we got married, <laughs> when she got married. Yeah. Um, so she did. She although she wasn't like uh, a lot of women that came over from Pakistan, she was actually quite different to them. She picked up the language quite fast. She went and got a job as well. Uh, a lot of women that came over didn't go and get a job. And so she tried to understand the culture that she was in. So she was a little bit different. And she bought. Um, I think, and I'm not saying this as a criticism, but when people bring religion over from from their country, they, ju they kind of really just bring the culture over. Mm. She didn't really do that. She actually brought the religion with her. She wanted. She was still growing and learning more about the religion, and she tried to she tried to uh, adapt uh, the culture that we're in uh, to the to what she taught me as well. And I'm actually realizing this now at almost 40. I never understood it then. So, so my mom was quite unique in that way, uh, and my dad wasn't really a my dad wasn't a typical guy that gets married to some girl from back home either. Mm. He was always a little bit different. He was surrounded by a lot of um, a lot of people that came over, a lot of people that were growing up here in the sixties and seventies. They were surrounded by a lot of you know alcohol and gambling and you know all these vices, and he could have yeah. got away with it. 
and he was in this he was he was somewhere where uh, religion wasn't really dominating and but he still chose to keep uh, he still chose to keep himself uh, polished and away from all of that so that was quite unique but um he tried getting into business. He, he hated uh, working for someone. He, there was, you know, institutionalized racism and very genuine racism. Uh, um, he didn't have a degree, all these kind of things. And so he, I, I went into business when I was about 15, 16. I started building PCs from home. He, I broke my first PC um, uh, and then my dad had to help me get it fixed. And then my dad was like, oh, you could see I was really into computers. Mm. The guy fixed my, the guy then offered, my dad got him to train me for a year. So he told, taught me how to build PCs. I think I built around about a thousand PCs in a year with my bare hands. Wow. You know, those desktop PCs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, maybe not a year. I think maybe two or three years. I can't remember what the figure is now, but it was about, it was, I mean, I've done a thousand PCs, but I can't remember how long it took me to do that. Um, and then, uh, you know, I started selling PCs from home and then my dad kind of caught on onto it and thought there's really something here. And then we went into business together in my first business, which was a computer business. It was like 1999 that just, just about broke even. It wasn't a great experience and I hadn't realized it actually taught me a lot, but I hadn't realized that at the time. And how old were you at that time? I was 19. Okay. So I would I would go to uni in the morning, like you know, um, I'd go depending on what day it was and what le- my lectures were. But uh, a typical day would be get to uni for about half nine in the morning while my dad would be at work uh, as uh, his uh, his desk job work, and then I would you know do my lectures and stuff to like ten one like one or two a p.m. Walk down, we'd have like a part time assistant. Walk down to the shop, which was a thirty minute walk, and then spend the afternoon serving customers and everything. And then wrap up at six. If somebody had a PC to be delivered or some repair job needed to be done at somebody's house, go and deliver the PC, mm. get home for about seven, have something to eat, and then do my uh, homework, uni homework, mm. you know, dissertation or whatever. And it was the same thing Monday to Friday. And then Saturday would be a, you know, a bit of the shop and a bit of – and then Sunday would be like home. And that was like 70-hour weeks. So uh, just, just one thing on that, yeah? Tell me like – because, you know, most of the people that I see of that age today – um, you know, they might not have that kind of uh, that drive, that action, that passion, and all this stuff. Obviously, you were packing uni and you were packing this stuff in. So, what was it that was kind of driving this behavior? What was making you feel like, look, I, I would do this because fear otherwise... of my dad. It's fear <laughs> of my dad. That's all it was. Good old fear. Good. Because okay. <laughs> um, my my dad at that time was about I can't remember how old he was now. He was about forty five. Hmm. So you could say I, I wouldn't call it a crisis, but it was this was his midlife transition. He'd been in he'd been working since he was 16. So he'd been in work for about 30 years at this wow. point. Yeah. And he really wanted to transition. And I was his and I don't I'm not saying this as him being a tyrant, but I was his key out of that world hmm. because I, he didn't know how to build PCs. I knew, how to, I knew understood all the technical side of things. But he, you know, he was gonna. He threw the money in. He was, he was gonna understand the financial side of things and talking to suppliers and all that kind of stuff. So bringing those two things together, and he couldn't leave his full, job full time at that point. So he needed me to kind of, you know, pick up wherever he, you know. So it was kind of a. So there, there was some of that, but there was also I, I, I'd, I'd met somebody when I was like. Uh, 11 or 12 when he this guy built my first pc and he was a friend of my uncle's and i'd seen what he, he this guy was driving fancy cars and he was having the time of his life and he was getting to enjoy himself and all this. and i'd seen all of this and I, so i was seeing the the corporate world in front of me and i was seeing the entrepreneurial world in front of me and the entrepreneurial world was just so much more exciting and mm. this was right in front, it, this wasn't you know there was no apps there was no facebook there was nobody was writing about it in the articles mm. i was seeing it in front of me i was seeing this guy who would 
his business was doing, I can't remember what the figure was. It was something like 30 grand. It was either 30 grand a day or it was 30 grand a month. I think it was 30 grand a day or a wow. week, something like that. It was stupid numbers. And he was having the time of his life and he had this really fancy car and he was really enjoying it. And he got to tell people what to do and all this, you know. Mm. And he was having fun. And then you, I see my mom and dad go to work and they're stressed and their managers are shouting at them, not, you know, giving them a hard time. And it's just stress, stress, stress. And this guy's making money and he's, and he's loving it. So I saw both things. So I, I kind of was, you know, leaning more towards the entrepreneurial side of things. Okay, excellent. So then what, what happened? Like, so you went through that journey for a few years with, with uni and with your dad and stuff. And tell me what happened from there then. So that this, the first business only broke even. The second business ended up doing one million in the first year, just under oh, okay. a million pounds in the first year. So it was, it was shy of about 20 or 30,000 pounds. So, you know, and then I, I, my dad had left his work by that point. He'd, he'd gone into this business full time. It took, it took a six month career break from his uh, main job. And then he never looked back. He's, ne he's never been back since. Amazing. That was it. So he never, he never went back. Um, so, you know, then, in a way, I guess you did help to uh, achieve you know, the, the goal that he wanted, which was to get yeah, out of, of the absolutely. job and get into his own business. So yeah, yeah, great. absolutely. That absolutely happened. But, I, you know, I was still very young. I wasn't really seeing all of that. Hmm. But he saw it. He, he saw the bigger picture. And I, I played my part in the big. He was more like the conductor of the orchestra. Yeah. And I was like the violinist, not, you know, when the, the guy tells you you're good at your violin and or he doesn't tell you maybe. And you just, you know. The old people in the auditorium like, oh, that concert was so yeah. good, you know, just this violin kid in the corner, you know. Mm. So, um, uh, yeah, and um, so that did a, a million in the first year. Our life completely changed. You know, my dad had always wanted a BMW. He finally got his BMW. He wanted Ooh. to build, you know, he wanted to build this five-bedroom house and he wanted, you know, he got all the things that, you, you know. But the, the interesting thing is, as soon as that business started doing really, really well, mm -hmm. like as soon as my mom could see that he's never going to go back, we're never going to go, he's never going to go back to work again. And our lives are going to be very different financially. The first thing she said to him was, whatever profit that you've made after paying for expenses and everything, you're going on, we're going on Hajj. Mm. And then he paid um, for himself, for my mom, for me, for my two sisters. And he paid for everything, like the, the tickets, wow. the flight, the accommodation, everything. He paid for everything. Amazing. And then we were there for six weeks. We were in Saudi. You know, the Whoa. first happened as soon as we got that money is we were in Saudi Arabia for six weeks. You know, mm. and, and he would pay for everyone. Like we, there were other families that were staying in the room with us because you know this is this is before he had got all these five star hotels yeah, and all yeah, these yeah. experiences. So you're in a room with like ten other people. You know, and he was paying for everyone. He was paying for their food and he was paying for the tea and he was running around and, you know, and the business was running back home. And, you know, so that's a, that my mom made the first thing that my mom made him do without money was, right, we're going on Hajj. So that year for me, the year 2000 was very transformative because I got an internship that, that year because I'd fallen out with my dad because I was like, I'm really hard. I'm really tired of playing this violin and my fingers are hurting. Mm. Kind of. um, and I'd got an internship that, that year. I'd moved away for the first time in my life. But then I was going, but this business was doing really well. And then, you know, I'd gone on Hajj as well. So there was a lot of like transformation, you know, there was a lot going on around me. Um, and then, you know, from there, kind of just, you know, he, he kept running that business. I'd had enough after that. <laughs> I was yeah. like, I'm bad enough. I'm going to go and do my own thing. So, okay, great. So, what, so obviously, I think you studied uh, computer science with that at uni. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. good. So, tell me, well, computing. Okay. So, when, when you kind of, 
you, you're quite different then to most people in the sense that, you know, maybe they had a part-time job, they've never really done any business or anything. So now you come out of uni, alhamdulillah, you graduate, you get uh, get uh, finished with uni, and you've got all this experience, you've done this kind of thing which has given you a sense of uh, achievement and stuff. Like, how did you then take on the world? What was the next step for you and what did you do? I, I well, I, I mean, because the, 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 the business, my dad's business was doing perfectly fine. So he didn't really need me as much, but he, well, he wanted me, emotionally, he wanted me there. He mm, needed yeah. emotionally, wanted me, I'm his son, you know, he can trust me the most and everything. But I, for me, it was getting to the point, I couldn't do what I, you know, because you have the father, parent, you know, parent, dad, son relationship. I couldn't say things to him without upsetting him because he would see it as a sign of disrespect. I couldn't disagree with him. But I disagreed with him on a lot of things. Um, this Because this is this is the dot-com era, right? And the whole dot-com thing collapsed and everything. But I could see where things were going. I could see e-commerce. This is pre-e-commerce. Mm. I could see e-commerce was going to take off. Um, and I could see a lot of things into the future. And he, he just wouldn't do it. He wouldn't move into the internet era. He just mm. wouldn't do it. He just wanted to continue putting the ads in yellow pages, keep taking phone calls, you know, keep just doing everything the 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 the, the 90s kind of way. And I didn't, I I, I could tell that that wasn't going to last. It just wasn't going to work. Um, and then it, it, I, just, I couldn't get him to see. I couldn't get him to follow that path. So what did you uh, do next then? I went and got a job. Okay. So where did you? I what went kind and got of job? a job in IT, um, and I I I got the highest paying job at that time. Um, for for somebody that was my age, I think it was 22, 20, yeah, twenty two at that time. So I got a really well paid job for for a twenty two two year old at the yeah. time. I completely aced the interview, um, and they wanted me, and they, you know they got me, and, I, and everything was great. But within six months, I just couldn't take it anymore. I mean, I was I was fielding eighty IT support calls a day. Yeah. I was getting screamed at on the phone. I was my health was deteriorating because IT is very very. You know when you when the servers are down and the network is down, yeah. you know you. Do, First of all, when you're in IT, you don't get you not you don't get any respect because you're just the IT guy. So you you don't get given any respect, and then on top of that, you get all this stress because everybody just dumps on you. You know, yeah. everything is your fault when it's not your fault. I mean, if the infrastructure around you is not set up correctly, you, you're just there putting out. And I was literally just putting out fires all day, mm. every single day. Uh, and even though I, I, you know, I managed to make some money and everything, I just I just didn't. Um, I hated it. I I just didn't like it at all. So I, I went to um, Pakistan. I, uh, I set up a software team in Pakistan and started selling software to companies here in the UK. So, so did, you, did you leave your job and then you were doing that on your own type thing, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So I went to Pakistan wow. and um, I went and met the information minister in Karachi. Um, I said, look, I want to hire some... I read this article, Pervez Musharraf, he was the one that was... He was the prime minister of our president of Pakistan at the time. And uh, he'd written this article to say that, you know, Microsoft had been hiring, you know, all these big firms like Microsoft, etc. They'd been hiring firms in India to do their outsource their software development. But people, smaller businesses that wanted to come to Pakistan, they could pay uh, less money and they could get they could get a project manager and, and, a, and an office and a whole team and they could get everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they could just outsource all their development. Now, I didn't mm-hmm. have that kind of money, but I really liked the idea of it. Mm-hmm. So I went there and, and um, I, I tried it, but it turned out to be a pipe dream. It, 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 it was just too immature it was just too it was too soon so it didn't really work but it was a good experience i tried it um i tried hiring some developers i learned a lot i tried selling that software here but then you know it caused me a lot of problems because it was full of bugs and you know i met a lot of people in it over there and all these kind of things so i kind of saw that 
Um, and then I came back and then I ran, I ran, I, I then my dad introduced me to somebody who then became my business partner for the next eight years. Okay. And this guy had been very successful at Compaq. Uh, Compaq has at that time had something like 13 grades and 13, the 13th grade is CEO. And this guy was on grade 12. Hmm. Um, so he was very high up. Um, and, uh, he, I wanted to go into network support and he was, he'd already got it all figured out. He'd done a lot of this at Compaq. So he had the technical knowledge and then he taught me a lot. He taught me a lot about servers and infrastructure and firewalls and, um, and everything. And then, you know, but I, I had the ability to bring customers in and, and do customer relationship and all those kind of things. So we did that for eight years, but that was eight years of failing. I mean, we just yeah. failed miserably every single year. We just constantly failed and failed and failed and failed mm-hmm. and failed. I learned a lot, but I just kept failing. Um, and I realized that because I had created a behavioral pattern of my own where basically I went from one business partnership where I couldn't disagree with my partner because uh, because the, that partner was my father. I went into another relationship with that business partnership that was very similar. This guy was a lot older than I was. Um, and he had because he taught me a lot, it was like he was my parent. Mm. you know. And I couldn't, it was really hard to disagree with him. And when I started getting... Uh, to the point where I was able, where I wasn't afraid of disagreeing with him, he couldn't take it anymore. Hmm. You know, cause he felt very disrespected by that. And um, yeah, I was, and you know, and then it just the whole thing just started to unravel, and just I just the wheels came off and everything. And I, my health deteriorated really, really badly. Um, I was having a lot. I've, I've had a lot of health issues for the last 20, 25 years, and you know, it just the whole thing was just a disaster basically for eight years. And then I left that, um, and then I came to London uh, in twenty thirteen. My wife got a job. Um, and I, I wasn't, you know, I was all over the place. So she got a job and she was like, let's just get out of here. <clears throat> let's go to London. And then um, I started um, helping startups because um, <clears throat> I, I, I realized some family friend of my uh, wife's, um, this guy came up to me and he goes, you know, I want to develop an app. And he was about to put 15,000 pounds down on an app. Um, uh, just like that. He was just going to hire a company, put 15K down. And I was like, wait a minute. I mean, that's a, that's a really that's a really silly thing to do because you don't know anything about the customer at this point. You don't know what problem you're solving. It takes time to understand what problem you're solving. Yeah. You're going to burn that 15K and realize, okay, well, this wasn't the right way to do, to do things, but that 15K will be gone. So start with 500 pounds and, you know, you, there's manual ways of uh, validating the market and everything. And that was a real eye-opener for him. Is that like, you just saved me 15,000 pounds. And then when I realized that, you know, I've got this skill and he, was, he kept telling me, this is, you should be consulting people on this. So then I started approaching some startups and I ended up helping like 10 startups in like 36 hours, you know, and, and wow. saved a lot of people a lot of money and all this. Kind of, and I thought, okay, well, this is what I want to go into. I want to go into consulting. Mm. So I then just started consulting startups and businesses and, and that's what I started doing. So I've, I've been doing mostly that now for the last, uh, since two, mostly I've been doing that since 2013. I mean, I've had, I've gone through a pivot over the last year now as well, but that's what I've been doing for the last five or six years. Fantastic. Okay. It's really, really great to hear the story, especially what I really like about what you're saying, Roy, is that you're, you're very real. Like you're not, you're not kind of sugarcoating because that's what a lot no. of people do when they come on uh, interviews or they get in front of a camera, they start to like, you know, show a version of themselves and they take out all the negativity and stuff, but you're showing it really how it is. You know, this is, this is what leadership is about. This is what life is about, right? Ups mm-hmm. and downs, conflicts, failures, all these kind of things. So I love the fact that you're talking about that in your story. So today, like, how would you describe what you do and who do you do it for? 
What I what I do now um, as a business strategist for me, my job now is if if there's a startup or a small business, let's say they're doing 50k, 100k, 200k a year already, but they're kind of stuck at a plateau. My job is to, uh, uh, you know, those people would normally approach me, and my job is to have a look at their business and go right. Um, how are we going to get you to half a million, one million, one and a half, two million, if not five million? How are we going to get you to that? And that will normally entail, you know, a marketing strategy, brand strategy, mm-hmm. operational strategy and everything. But almost inevitably, that's going to require an injection of capital as well, because if you want to get to that point, you've got to be able to, you've got to, be able to spend that money to bring the staff in, to, bring, you know, hire the, um, uh, the marketing agencies and, you know, bring all of that stuff in. So that requires more capital. So essentially, my job is help them get all the ducks in a row um, and then, you know, bring the money in and then get them to, you know, uh, just get the money in and get them to half a million, one million, two million or whatever. So it's just, you know, it's basically provide where, uh, you know, you have a CEO that's the, um, you know, the, the, the guy that's running the business, he's like the conductor. He's the conductor of the orchestra, right? My job is basically to provide the auditorium, which is, okay, this is where you can run your business in this, you know, the, 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 the seats and bring the customers in and put the whole thing together, basically. And his job is to, is to conduct and, and run that business. So for me, it's to provide everything around that, basically. Okay, fantastic. So this is good because we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about growth and, and things that people can do. Just before we go into that, just tell me um, about, uh, in terms of like um, a big moment for you where you felt that it kind of defined your life or a big life-changing situation, uh, what would you say it was or is it something you've kind of said already as part of your story? Um, I, I, I don't know if there's if there's one ever if there's one particular. There's been lots of div- yeah, small, there's lots of small, small ones. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's not been one big one. I couldn't say. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, lots of smaller ones. Okay, and so when you think about because obviously you've had different levels of achievement, right? Like you know, with your dad's business and other things, and then you've helped lots of startups and stuff like that. What's the achievement that kind of you know really stands out for you personally? I mean, obviously you've written the book as well, so that's I guess a huge achievement. Yeah, I mean the the book has been a bigger achievement for other people, so more than it has been for me. Mm. Um, for me, it was uh, like I had everything inside of me, and I just wanted to vomit it out. I just like mm. you know I can't keep this. I'm tired of having the same argument and conversation with everybody over and over. I just want to yeah. put it out onto paper. And if they want to, if somebody wants to have this debate with me, well, there's the book. Go and read it, and then let's have a conversation. Excellent. If you disagree with it, but I don't want to go over the same thing over and over. Yeah, it was more like that, and then from there was the podcast as well. But my biggest achievement um, would probably be, uh, and I've had a, I've had a number of these over the last couple of years, is where somebody will message me and say, um, "You don't know me very well, um, but I know you very well, and I consider mm. you one of my best friends." Wow. And I'm like, okay. And they'll say, I've read, all, I've read your book and I've listened to all your podcasts and I read all your Facebook status updates. And whenever I've been in a moment where, um, uh, you know, I've been really, I've been in a real dip or I've really felt like, um, um, I've really felt like uh, uh, I, I'm lost or I don't know where to go with this. You know, I've, I've gone, you, you've, you've just, end, at that moment in time, you've written some sort of status update on Facebook or whatever. And that's been the very thing that I've needed to hear. Mm. And, so, you know, and then and I, I've had people like from Singapore, from India, from Peru, from Hong Kong, all these places and say, and they just tell me their whole life stories. And these have been some seriously 
eye-opening stories. I mean, one guy, he messaged me and he said, you know, my brother got jailed last year and my father got jailed because something happened with the, with the business and then, and then the, I got beat up and then this happened and that happened. And then in all of that, I didn't know what to do. And I read the status update of yours and you said this, this and this. And then I started doing it and slowly and, but surely my life started to change. You know, um, and I've had people in my team. Um, I had this one guy that came on my team. He'd had a very, very broken life. I mean, really horrible upbringing. The worst things that you, some of the worst things that you can imagine. Uh, and he spent a year with me and, um, you know, he went back into his full-time job afterwards for, for multiple reasons. But when he started with me, when he was, you know, and, and, and like his, because he was working with me part-time. At his full-time job, he was a complete nobody. He was invisible. He was afraid to express himself. Um, you know, uh, he was just a cog in the machine. And then by the time he finished, he was he was he was awarded uh, Star Employee of the Year or something like that. Mm. Uh, he was a somebody. He was it was a lot more confident. He was a lot more assured of himself. Um, and he, you know, he knew where he was going in life, and he, you know, he was planted. And for me, that was the ultimate achievement: is to turn somebody's life around, basically. Amazing. You know, that's what leadership is: it's nurturing. Yeah. Yeah. I mm. think one thing that I really want to say is that the, the approach that we have to, to leadership in our community is the best example I can give of this is of a flower, right? You know, if you have like a any any flower, right? I mean, some guys will consider this a little bit effeminate as a as a as a as a metaphor, but I think it really is the ultimate metaphor because, you know, when you get a flower, right, you can either, you know, it's got, it, it looks really nice. It's got a really nice scent to it and everything, right? It's got a really good quality to it. You can, you can chop, you can chop the stem off. You can take that flower, you can bring it into your house and you can do multiple things with it. You can either split it up and, you know, put rose petals on their bed or you can squeeze it and take the perfume out of it. Right. There's all these things that you can do with it or you can just put it on display and everything and you get the benefit from that, which is great. But what have you done to the flower? You've wrecked it. You've ruined it. Right. Or you can be, you know what? I'm going to water this flower and whatever I can take from this flower without harming it. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to continue to let it uh, blossom and I'm going to continue to let it grow. You can be that water and you can be that nurturer. And unfortunately, the approach that we have in the Western world, especially, but, you know, whether it's Muslims or non-Muslims, is we have the let's just cut the stem off and let's just extract from it as much as we can. Right. And you just suck that. You just suck every the whole life out of that flower. That's that is the modern working world. Mm. And, that, and we do this with ourselves as well. Right. You'll have seen this all around you is that even when we're not leading other people, we do the same thing to ourselves. You know, this. And, and forgive me for using this term, but this, this is the most appropriate term. Is this new term, you know, this hustle porn, which is just, you just hustle and you just, you just work all night and you work on Saturday and you work on Sunday and you work all night long. And what you, you, you just, that's like the flower just killing itself and just giving off all of its perfume and then having nothing left. You know, mm. that, that's the approach that we take. And that's not the approach to take. The approach to take is to be, is to nurture yourself. And then to nurture others. That's leadership. Mm, very good. Okay, I love that. So, so it's about nurturing yourself and nurturing others. Okay, excellent. So, like, tell tell me a little bit about what do you mean when you say uh, nurturing yourself, nurturing others? Because you're right, there is this whole mentality that just work hard, work hard, work hard. But then at the same time, you do have that whole thing that ultimately the leader is the last man standing. He's the one who's always going to give more than everyone else as well. So, how do you kind of balance that? And what do you mean by nurturing? So you know this um, this this uh, the first thing that I would say is that is the is the term leadership is our understanding of what leadership actually is. 
And I want to go back to where, where I feel that's come from. Leadership, where it used to be considered incredibly important, was in the battlefield. Mm. Okay, So military expeditions. And it, what the, the term, that, the, the description, what you're giving to leadership is perfectly apt for that, for that environment, for that context, right? The leader is the last man standing because whoever you look at, Khalid bin Walid, uh, you know, the, the, the Western leaders, when they want to talk about it, uh, Erdogan and all these people, you want to talk about these people, they're the people that have the greatest amount of courage, that when everybody else is, is dying around them, they're still standing and they're still fighting. If there's a, a thousand people facing them and the guy's legs being chopped off and his arms being chopped off, he's still got one arm left and he's still going. Yeah. So this, this understanding of what leadership is comes from uh, the military. Yeah. And it's, it's romanticized in uh, Hollywood movies mm. and, 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 and in you know, Western media. So And everything is done with military precision, you know, everything is uh, is like clockwork and mm. there's no room for people's feelings and emotions. And uh, you just you got to be there. And you, you know, the, you know, when the Transformers come and they're fighting, and, uh, you know, it's all I mean, I just watched Avengers Endgame yesterday. And it's just go, 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 go. That's how it works. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's all or nothing. But that doesn't take into the context of the work environment is not like that. There's mm. no big enemy. If you if you look at all the um, vernacular, all the terminology, right, the language that's used in the corporate environment is all military language. Okay. Leadership is the last man standing. Mm. The, the the competition is the enemy, so you've got to beat the enemy, and you know you've got to um, you've got to be all out, and you've got to get the world, to, you've got to conquer the world, and you've got to get the world to see mm -hmm. who you are. This is so all true, yeah. language. This whole language is 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 military language, right? Mm. But the world that we live in, first of all, uh, the, the real leaders will tell you uh, and the people that have become really successful, they will tell you there's no such thing as competition, right? It's a bit of a cliche. It's a bit of a, a platitude. But it's true. There is the, the, your, your only competition is, is yourself in terms of how good can you solve the customer's problem, mm. right? The customer is the yep. king. So there is no enemy. There is no battlefield. Right. So therefore, you've got to understand the context that we live in. The context that we live in is what everybody does in this day and age is knowledge work. We use you've got to see as what we're all doing is creating paintings. So, you know, if you want to if you if you want to get people to see your painting, you've got to create a better painting and you've got to be able to touch that customer and go, what is it? You know, but you but it's also subjective. You can't say to somebody, well, that painting is better than that painting. It's subjective. Mm. So our approach is is painting, right? So you got to understand the context. Now, in that context, you then the the, your, the language has to change and every, the whole dynamic has to change. In that context, you need to be able to take a rest. You need to you need to be making sure that the people who are doing the painting are out there up uh, 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 their optimal creativity. Mm. If, if, when a writer has a writer block, you don't tell them to keep on writing. When a painter has a, a creative block, you don't go keep painting. You say, all right. Go for a walk in the park. Um, go and have a cup of coffee. Um, you know, spend time with your family. Just switch off, and then come back. And when you're feeling it, come back and then redo it. That's how. That's how you take that approach, right? Mm -hmm. And there's an ayah in the Quran which I, I still love to this day. Verily, uh, in the alternation of the uh, of the night and day are signs for men of understanding, right? Is this thing of separation and gathering, which is which is you'll see this a lot in the Quran. You see separation and gathering a lot in the Quran, and it's this thing about during the day you have the sun, and then at, you know, right the sun is gathered, 
and then at night it separates. Or you can look at it as darkness. Darkness is separated, and then at night it gathers, right? And it se- it, it, it separates. And the the, the 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 day is for work, and all those kind you know errands and and mm. um, working and chores and all those kind of things. And then the night is for rest, and it's for reflection, and it's for dhikr, right? It's for those things. The the, the sky is a canopy, as Allah Taala says in the Quran. It's, it's a, the sky is a canopy. It's for rest. So you rest and you reflect. And then you recharge and you get up in the morning and then you and then you go for it again, you yeah. know. And there's there's, there's a whole uh, a set of secrets and all of that that you know your best work is in the morning, you know. One of the things that I've been doing now for the last year is that uh, at, uh, you know around about ten half ten at night I'll switch everything off, put my phone away, I switch the TV off, I, I dim the lights as much as my wife will allow me. I'll dim the lights right, um, and and I will just stop doing everything, right? And I will just stop. And then I just switch off and I just reflect. And just by that exercise, just by doing that, no caffeine in the morning, no nothing else, no any, no fanciness, I can naturally wake up in the morning at seven half seven, nat- and feel rested and feel feel like I want to take on the day. And I and I can I can bring a lot of my creativity out in the day very very easily. I don't need a coffee to pick me up, you know. I don't need. Um, you know, I, I don't need to psych myself. I don't need to do anything. I'm just naturally into it. Mm. You know, that's what it's for. Yeah. But my, my cousin was here yesterday, and he's at uni at the moment, and he was telling me that he's doing these um, assignments, and he's up till 5 o'clock in the morning doing these, doing these assignments. So, he's, you know, that habit gets made at university because you cram for your exams and for your dissertations because you're just, you're just at it all the time. And then this this seeps into the into the corporate life as well. You see these guys who are working in the city, you know, they, yeah. they work at two or three o'clock in the morning, then they get up and then they go, you know, they stay in the hotel, yeah. go back to work at seven in the morning. It, that's not the way that this should be. Hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So this is great. So 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 for you, like nurturing is about getting that rest, that relaxation, so that you are more optimum than you'd ever be, even if you continue to work. So and then obviously what that means is that even though you might be doing slightly less hours. The hours you are putting in is it's basically much, barakah, isn't it? Much, your your output is higher much, much, than your input. Okay. Way, I mean, it's, I mean, I I've said this so many times that when I when I can achieve more in two hours than most people can achieve in twenty, and I and mm. I've done it. I there was um, there was a um, a whole non-profit that was working on this mosque situation about uh, three years ago, and that there was and I was part of a group of fifteen. There was fourteen of them. And I was part of that group. There was 14 of them and there was me. And I would get more done in an hour than those 14 of them put together were getting done in four or five hours. Mm-hmm. And this was a co- and they just couldn't understand what is it about this guy. They, and they just thought I was working really hard and I just had a ton of energy and everything. And it wasn't that. I just had a lot more barakah because of the way that I was doing stuff. Mm. And I was constantly able to get a lot more done than them, constantly. There was this one situation where... Um, just there, they were like, "Look, we can't find anybody to put the website together. Do you mind helping us out?" I was like, "All right." I put this website together in 30 minutes, right? And the people were talking about it for th- for three months, and you know, uh, and then we, things got to a point where there was this there was this other party, and and then they, they didn't like this other they didn't like the group that I was working with, and the thing that scared them the most was these guys have got a really good website, and they were like, "Can you please sh- can you please um, uh, delete your website because that's intimidating us and all this? Like, could you just switch yeah. it off?" Because the website and the website was just text. It had a bit of text. It was a one pager, but it just really, really bothered them. It just had so much barakah in it. Mm. 
Mm. And they couldn't deal with it. So, so tell me, like, you know, when, when you think about, like, uh, your style of leadership, everything that you're talking about leadership, uh, obviously there's more than one way of skinning a cat, right? What, who, who's the leader or someone that's really inspired you in terms of, like, leadership and the way you think about leadership and the kind of leaders you've seen in your life? Sultan Abdul Hamid II. Okay, tell me about him. Imagine I know nothing about him. Okay, so I, I, well, I, I actually knew nothing about him for a long time as well. Uh, him and probably, I would say, Ertugul at the moment. Th- these are the two at the moment. So I'll tell you about Sultan Abdul Hamid first. So, Sultan Abdul Hamid, my understanding of him was that, because um, uh, I, when I went to Turkey about five or six years ago, I went to Top Kapi Palace and, you know, they have the artifacts of the Ottoman Empire and everything. So my understanding was that these people were very opulent, uh, there was a lot of decadence um, that these people were very switched off. They, they're the reason that the the, the Ottoman Empire mm-hmm. fell. Yeah. And that Turkey was. Uh, I, I'm no wonder Turkey got formed and and all these kind of things. Now that I've been watching uh, Sultan Abdul Hamid this TV series and I've been watching it and I'm starting to understand. Oh, wait a minute. This is this is the history that's been written by the victors, right? It's revisionist mm. history. And now I've started to understand who this person really was. Um, and, you know, I've really started to understand that this person was all about creating a, 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 a structure that would allow people to prosper. That's what he was fighting for. And unfortunately, um, you know, as the saying goes, that if, if you, you can, even if you, even if you've got the strongest bull, if he's, if he's caught in a ravine on his own and he's surrounded by a pack of hyenas or a pack of bulls, he, he, there's nothing he can do because if they all, if they all uh, um, uh, collude against him, there's not much he can do. He's going to get beaten down eventually. Mm. And that's how I now see him that, you know, okay, because a lot of people have this argument, well, if he was so good, then why did he lose the war? So what is, it, what is it that uh, inspires you about him? What was it about him? He, you know, he was very astute. Like, he was aware of everything. He was, and he could see the bigger picture on everything. He could have, you know, one of the things that he he did, uh, like right from the get go, one of the things that he he didn't like was this idea of um, the youth um, uh, reading the newspaper. He wouldn't allow newspapers in the palace, mm. right? And right right from then, he could understand that what the British were doing, because the British were uh, owned these um, these papers, right? What they were doing is that they were fanning the flames of uh, this, you know, Turkish independence through uh, the, the, the newspapers. Mm. So he, he didn't want uh, the, the kids to be impression, uh, you know, the, to be, to be, he could, he could see what they were doing. He knew that the war was a media war. He could see that straight away, right? He could see, um, uh, he could just see, he could, he, he understood the bigger picture of everything. He was always connecting the dots. He was always looking at the bigger picture, not just looking, okay, this guy's come in uh, and he's offering me, uh, the British are coming in and they're offering to build a railway. They've got better engineering that we have. Mm. They've got technology. Okay, let's just give them the contract and let's just get the railway built. He wasn't looking at it that way. He was looking at, if they come in and build a railway, going, they will be in a strategic position to destroy us in 50 years' time. He could understand that. So he had he vision, was, basically. He could see what yeah. was coming ahead as well. Yeah, really? but, but at the same time, he was nurturing everybody that was around him. He had a heart. He had empathy, you know, mm. um, and, you know, he and, and he enjoyed his craft. He was a woodworker, so he would work on his craft, you know, and he would just and he would also make very, very bold moves. He would make very, very courageous moves. There's one story um, of his. One thing that happened was uh, because he had a lot of traitors, unfortunately, that were around him mm. and they uh, betrayed him many, many times. Right. So they and, and, and also before uh, uh, he was given the position of the throne, the people uh, that, two, I don't know how many uh, sultans there were before him, but they'd unfortunately been very naive. 
and they'd signed away, they'd weakened the Ottoman Empire through, through to, uh, to put it politely, it was through their, through their naivete, right? They'd weak, so they'd signed a lot of accords and a lot of these things. So when um, he came onto the throne, there was a noose around his neck. He was in a very difficult position, okay? So there was a lot, you know, like the, the Ottoman assets had been sold off, the public, um, uh, the stock exchange had been created, and uh, the Ottoman Empire was in a lot of debt. So now he, it was very difficult for him to maneuver himself in a lot of ways, right? And one of the things that happened was, uh, um, uh, while he was in in power, one of his uh, men betrayed him. And when this is a spoiler alert, if you decide to start watching the TV series, but I'm sorry, but this is going to happen now, right? Just the, TV series, the TV series is all based on his memoirs. Yeah. It's all based on memoirs of the people that were around. So it's very accurate, very, very, very accurate. But anyway. What happened was uh, things got to a point where the British ships had left and they were sailing towards um, Istanbul to come and seize the Ottoman Empire. Okay, and uh, what happened was uh, the Greeks Greeks were coming at the same time, right? And uh, this was it. It was going to be all over for the Ottoman Empire, right? And there was nothing that he could do legally. To, to stop them coming. Like, they didn't have the manpower to... to, to I mean, the Ottomans had the manpower to take on one uh, uh, one enemy at a time. So they, if yeah. the British came, they could take them on. And if the Greeks came, they could take them on. And if the Russians came, they could take them on. But they couldn't take all on all three at once. There was no way of doing that, right? And in that moment, he had the presence of mind of how to deal with the situation. Like, everything's closing in on you. All his... Um, all his... Uh, 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 you know, people around him, they were panicking and, you know, and, and obviously the British had been fanning the flames as well. So he didn't have to even have the public support and everything. Right. So he's got all this going on at the same time. And he still had the presence of mind of what to do in that situation. Right. Yeah. He uh, he had a spy in. The, so this was uh, led by Queen Victoria. So the queen before this queen. Right. He had a spy in uh, in the um, uh, in, in uh, Buckingham Palace. Right. And he got him to uh, create a concoction of um, uh, of a certain kind of coffee. So they gave the coffee to the queen, and um, basically that put the queen to sleep. So she didn't wake up in the morning. She didn't die, but she didn't wake up in the morning. So she was asleep. And then uh, basically, when the, the British em- uh, uh, ambassador, when he came to the sultan to say we're gonna we're going to um, we're gonna do you over, right? Like basically, the sultan said, I know for a fact that your queen is asleep and she hasn't woken up. And if you want her, to, and if she doesn't wake up, you're going to have complete disarray in your country. So if you want her to wake up, right, then I, um, uh, then uh, I want you to turn your ships around right now. So then they had no choice but to turn their ships around. Wow. That was one thing. The other thing was that the Sultan also knew the whole, the entire, the whole of Europe, right? Basically, mm-hmm. all the people that are, that were leading, all the ki- kings and monarchs. Like, so we were, we were told that you know the the king of Denmark. He's Danish, and the king of uh, Germany is, uh, is is X Y Z, and the king of mm-hmm. France. But all the monarchs of all the, of all of Europe, they're all brothers, sisters, and cousins. Yeah. So they're yeah. working with each other, right? Mm. So what he did was, he said he was going to expose Queen Victoria was actually very ill. She had a very um, she had a very embarrassing disease. So he said he was going to expose that, um, and he was going to expose uh, how the Greek or the Russian or whatever guy was related. I can't remember which one it was. And basically, he got he, he basically just pulled out all of their weaknesses hmm. and just turned them all of them back. And hmm. they turned the ships around, they turned the Greeks, around, you know, and that was it. Just all, and it was all in one fell swoop. Amazing, amazing. Yeah, because he had the insight, 
he was able to do that. But nobody could see the wood. No, or everybody that was around him could not see the wood from the trees. Now the thing with me, I'm not, I'm not at Sultan Abdul Hamid level, and I, but I, I, I aspire to be that. But the thing with me is right. Going back to this thing about the the difference in the way of thinking, and um, uh, you know, uh, and you see all these people behaving in this other way. The thing I've already been in the trenches, right? A lot of, I mean, your 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 business partner Fessel, he did this um, post that he'd been in entrepreneurship for the last mm. five years. All the things that he'd learned, right? Uh, Twenty things or something that he'd learned over the last five years. You got to understand, I've been in entrepreneurship since I was sixteen. Mm. So all the things that he's learned. In the last five years, I was at that stage when I was 20 years old, and I, those 20 things that I learned then, and I, you know, a lot of these people that are coming on now and, and making all these promises, sign up for my course and do this, and this like last week. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, yeah. okay, well, I, I did all of that 20 years yeah, ago. I'm at yeah. the next stage now. You know, I've been in this for a very, very long time. Mm. So for me, I, I'm not looking at, okay, I'm not looking at, okay, what, what's gonna, where is the world going in the next six months, or where is the world going in the next, year, next year? I'm looking at. What are the big thing, the tectonic changes that are taking place over the next five or ten years? That's how I'm looking at things. Fantastic. So, so share some of that with us. Like, what do you think are like the the kind of big changes that we're going to see in the next, you know, five, ten, fifteen years? Like, what 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 are the big things that that we should do, and how should we be adapting as leaders and organisations? Well, I think there's, I think we're going to have a massive curveball that's going to hit us now. I don't know when that's going to hit. I don't know if that's going to be in the next couple of months, at the end of the year within the next couple of years. I don't know when this is going to happen. But I really do feel like we're going to have a major, major economic catastrophe now. I think it's inevitable okay. now. I think that's going to happen. If that happens, then, you know, a lot of people are going to lose their jobs, right? Um, it's going to mean things are going to be very expensive to buy. People are going to be, people are going to be in survival mode. Right. Once you're in survival mode, you're not really thinking about the nice car and the nice house. What you're thinking about is getting your bread and getting your beans and, and all that kind of stuff. Right. I think that's where we're headed. But this is not to alarm anybody. It's not to deter anybody. It's how do you orient yourself in that situation? What we're, what we're living in a time of right now is we're living in a time of distraction. Right. You look at everything that dominates Facebook right now um, and social media right now. Game of Thrones, Avengers, Endgame. Right. Uh, oh, she 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 took her hijab off and she did this and um, you know and 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 you know holidays and and selfies and all. That's what we're in. We're in the age of distraction right now, mm-hmm. and you can only get into an age of distraction is when you're in the age of decadence. Okay, and even though there's a lot of austerity and there's a lot of um, there are a lot of economic problems around us at the moment, we are still in an age of um, uh, decadence. So we're, because we're we're able to we're able to distract ourselves. Mm-hmm. But we're going to get to a point where you're not. You, it's it's going to be become so real. You're not going to be. You're not going to be able to deal with distractions. You're going to have to survive, and that's at that point. Right now, the person that is the leader is the person that looks like like a leader. So it's the person that's in a position of authority. Is the person that looks like he's got a lot of money. He has an outward display of wealth, and he might actually have a lot of money. So who people are turning to are those kind of people right now. Okay, well. He's the CEO of XYZ company. He's uh, he's got a, a twenty bedroom house and a big massive mansion in in, in mm. I don't know in Monaco or whatever. He's got a Ferrari. He's the president of XYZ country. So we're looking at those people right now, right? But these people have ended up in these positions either through privilege or through trampling over everybody else. Or for or Allah, I mean, at the end of the day, let's put these people in these positions. But what they're exacting, unfortunately, is tyranny. These people are the types. That extract everything from that flower. Mm. When you get into a mode of survivalism, right? When you get into a mode of survival, right? 
those people, they no longer going to be able to do anything because there's nobody going to be turning to them anymore because like, well, you, you've, you've not done anything for us, right? In, in that time, the people that have the ability to nurture everybody else, the people that, the, the guy that is able to say, I've only got a loaf of bread for tonight. And the guy next door comes knocking on his door and he says, okay, I'll share this loaf of bread with you. That's the kind of guy that's going to lead in, at that time. He's going to become the true leader. Mm. And right now, that's the kind of person that can say to himself, you know what? I know that if I did this, I could get a thousand likes on Instagram. Or, you know, if I just shortchanged that other guy because I could earn a little bit of money. Mm. That guy is saying to himself right now, Allah's watching. I don't want to do that. It's not the right thing to do because, and if I don't, you know, or the guy gets given a really good uh, uh, opportunity. I've got this business deal for you, but he knows it's, it's not strictly haram, but he knows it's unethical. Do you get what I'm saying? Mm. Right? He says, you know what? This is not a good idea. That person who can turn that thing away right now, that's the person that's going to be the leader when this, when, when, when this shift takes place. So I, I really, I like that as a, as a transition really, because, you know, I want to talk a little bit about billion dollar Muslim. Um, and it's quite interesting because what you're saying is that ultimately this, this leader is going to know that Allah is watching him and he's going to act a certain way. Uh, and in a way, that, that's kind of what you're saying with the book as well, is like, you know, we need spiritually inspired entrepreneurs as well. It can't just be like, like you're saying, the typical money hungry, like grab everything, destroy everything in your path uh, and just kind of get on with it. So just tell me a little bit about like why you felt you had to kind of, uh, write this book, what's the core message and how will this kind of uh, benefit or transform someone that's going to uh, read the book? So, uh, the, the thing that I started to realize was, uh, with, with two things, was entrepreneurship and money, right? Is that, um, entre if you, when you're not a successful entrepreneur, everybody's like, why don't you just go and get a job, just go and get a job, just go and get a job. But when you become successful, it's like, oh, wow, how did you make it? Oh, mm -hmm. wow, you must be yeah. so clever, must be so intelligent and everything. There's no in-between. Yeah. Okay, so that's a massive problem. And, you know, the, the, the answer, I couldn't find an, an answer from Islam for that. Like, how do because I knew entrepreneurship. I'd seen all the, the failures of entrepreneurship and I'd been through this journey myself. Mm. And I, I, I was certain that Islam had an answer to this. I just didn't know where it was and I couldn't find it. Um, and then where money is concerned, you, you find people are, are in two camps where money is concerned. They either fear money and really hate money, which is a very kind of Christianic, Catholic kind of approach, right? Is that money is to be shunned and it's to be hated and money is the root of all evil, mm. right? Or it's, or, or they lust money and they love money and they just, they just, you, you know, they're, they're so attached to it. It just, it just becomes their everything, mm. right? They, they salivate over it. Yeah. And actually, what you actually, what I also tended to find was actually the people that hate money actually still love money as well. They just really, they just don't want to be judged around their, their love for money, but they actually do mm. actually, love money. I, I tend to find that a lot as well. Um, and so what I wanted to do was have a discussion about that. Uh, but I did. But a lot of discussions that are that take place around that are done in a very uh, capitalistic um, uh, terms, right? Capitalism is used as a reference point, and I didn't want to. I didn't want to espouse capitalism any further. So I wanted to have that discussion uh, from an Islamic, from a, an Islamic or a spiritual point of view to say money is where you should be with money is. It, neither is it to be hated, but neither is it to be loved. You can have a conversation about money where it's just, just like you can have a conversation about a bottle of water. It's just a bottle of water mm. or it's just a sandwich. Yeah. It's, it's just a thing. It's just a tool. And I wanted, I wanted to have that conversation about money. Mm. And about entrepreneurship, what I wanted to have the conversation was 
that entrepreneurship is actually more entrepreneurship is actually more Islamic than getting a job. I mean, Rasulullah said that nine tenths of your risk comes from uh, uh, from trading. So then, why are we looking for jobs, right? Um, but the thing with when I when I wrote the book, um, I wrote everything that I knew at the time. What what was really interesting when I wrote the book was I went on a huge journey after I wrote that book. Hmm. And I ended up learning even uh, I learned, ended up learning things that solidified my understanding of uh, that how much Islam encourages entrepreneurship even even more, and how much it shuns capitalism, and how much it encourages uh, wealth, but you know uh, um, a, a spiritual approach to wealth. Hmm. You know, it's not, it's not about uh, making money so that you can you know buy a buy a private jet and get a Ferrari and 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 get on Instagram and start telling you know telling people to hustle. It's not about that. Hmm. Okay, so this, this is this is very interesting now, right? So you, you're saying that there's two extremes usually in business, in money, and all this kind of thing. Islam's always the middle path anyway, and you're saying that entrepreneurship is is really part of our tradition, our heritage, and it's something that's really really encouraged, which is uh, kind of seems like uh, like if you're an entrepreneur today, it's kind of like you're, I mean, a real entrepreneur where you're actually trying to make it. It seems like you're in a bit of an outcast and stuff, right? So, oh, um, absolutely. It's it's absolutely. very very interesting what you're saying. Now, what what I want to ask you is that when it comes down to um, the main message of the book, what's like the the main message? What's the kind of transformation, uh, or what will I get from from reading the book? Because it's very you, interesting. What you will get is uh, an inspiration. I find that especially the millennials, they want to go into entrepreneurship, but they have this. Uh, subconscious guilt that they might not even recognize consciously which is if i don't get a job then i've let my parents down because all this money they spent on my education and what will society think of me and what's going to happen if i fail and i'm just going to be a failure and if i do fail then there's no going back it's all or nothing mm. so i better just go and get a job and they need something that will give them the aid the permission to go actually it's it's okay to get into entrepreneurship and it's okay to fail and also the inspiration that yeah i really want to do this Go on, okay, try excellent. it, do it, and that—that's what the book will do for you. Excellent. So, so the, the, just um, on that, like, um, it's very good that you're talking about failure. You're talking about all this stuff because anyone that's been through your journey knows that failure has to become like a best friend of yours, right? So, what's like a what's like a, a good tip for you to say? Because you know, in in this world where we live in right now, I always say that we live in a kind of a very perfect world. Alhamdulillah, where Look, I want to know what's the capital of Venezuela. I go and type it in, I get it. I want to watch an episode of something, I put it in right now and I get it. I want to know, like last night my my kids were saying to me, um, uh, Abu, what did you watch when you were young as a kid? And I said, I watched Thundercats. I I said Thundercats, right? Oh, (laughs) Thundercats. So what I did is I played Thundercats, the intro from YouTube. Within one minute I got it. So everything we want is on demand. We get it right now, right? But entrepreneurship, growth, leadership... It's not like that, right? You've got to go through failures. You've got to go through hard times, all these kind of things you're mentioning. So someone that is not used to that way of life and then suddenly starts hitting these brick walls and these, these problems and this and that, what's your advice about actually making it through that? 
Well, it's it's difficult to give you one single statement or one single answer. Sure. What happened when when I when I released my book, uh, what I, I thought that what would happen is, because I, I, I just wanted to see a lot of Muslim entrepreneurs, genuine Muslim entrepreneurs, right? Yeah. And I thought, okay, I'll get this book out there, and then people will read it and go, right, I'm going to be an entrepreneur, and they can go. You can find a fair bit of entrepreneurial advice. You know, you can you can get a, some science on how to take your approach to a startup and how to raise investment and do and all doing all these kind of things. And I thought that will be it. My work will be done what i realized was all these things that you're talking about right now these questions kept coming on board um, and people kept asking me all these other questions and i was like okay wait a minute there's a whole host of stuff that needs to be answered so what i ended up doing was i ended up launching a podcast and these were everything that i haven't covered in the book i've actually spoken about on the podcast so that's available on spotify on uh, soundcloud on itunes it will be on google um, google podcast or whatever it's called at some point as well and why i mean i've got 60 episodes on there now right that i've been i've been coming out over the last year and a half and it's all these little things that nobody else is talking about about the experience of entrepreneurship and and what your approach to as a movement should to it should be it's 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 answering all those things that you didn't even know to ask, but you knew you needed kind of thing. Do you get what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's there, but it's not. You, you were hoping for an answer to that, but you just don't know what the answer is. It, I've, I've put all of that in there. Okay. I, I consider that my life's work. Like it's just out there for people to just listen to. And, and so, what is it for failure? Like, what are the kind of things that you you, you would say about getting up? From well, failure the biggest thing that I would say about failure is for, failure for me has always been if you fail, it it, it it's two things, but it, it's twofold really. Is Okay, what is this teaching me? Failure is always, what is this supposed to teach me? And you've also got to recognize with failure is, it's Allah's will. If you fail, it's Allah's will. So why? So you could look for the wisdom in, what is Allah's will in all of this? Right? Um, what, what, is, what, what is the wisdom? What is Allah's will? What's the hikmah in all of this? Okay? For me, I think, you know what? If I hadn't failed so many times, I wouldn't actually be able to advise people anymore. Mm. Because I haven't been through that failure myself, how can I advise them? And 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 in fact, you know, you were asking me earlier, what was your biggest turning point? One of my biggest turning points for me was, I had a a, a friend, um, and for all intents and purposes, he was the he's this model this model uh, six, uh, successful entrepreneurial story, right? He was a top notch investment banker um, uh, in, in this big bank. And then he, he left that, he moved to another country, he set up a property business, he then set up a property website, sold it for a couple of million. Mm. And now he's, a, he's an investor in other businesses and he's, he's got like multiple startups and, and they've done millions and all that. And he's this huge success story, okay? And uh, we were on some forum and he was on this forum with me, he was in some group or something. And uh, I actually wrote that I was thinking, I, I was sharing with some guys that I was thinking of going into uh, being a business consultant. Mm. And I remember him saying to me, who do you think you are to be a business consultant? Even I don't consider myself, I don't even consider myself successful enough to be a business consultant. So Mm. therefore, who are you to be a business consultant? And that just made me so angry because I thought, you know what? I've had so many failures that I can say to people, that's not a good idea. That's not a good idea. So you can steer people that way, Mm. then have to say, okay, well, this is what takes you, you know, and... I, I, I do still come across that um, uh, objection even now. I do come across resistance with that. Where people say, "Yeah, but okay, but what have you done? Well, what are you, are you? You're not Elon Musk, and you're not um, Steve Jobs, and you're not this." Well, I'm like, "Yeah, but you're not either." 
least I think further down the line than you are. You know what's really amazing about what you said is that when you think about uh, your failures, like you think Allah's wisdom, and you're, then you're saying when your failures, if you learn from them, what happens is that your failures become your assets. Yeah, but also in, in addition to that is that people, look, is this whole uh, terminology, going back to the terminology, the terminology of what, what is the definition of leadership? What is the definition of success? The definition of success, which we've taken from Western philosophy, philosophy, right? We've taken from the Western world. Our definition of success is house, car, good-looking wife, private jet, um, mm. holidays, blah, 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 blah. That's our definition of success. Yeah. What is the Islamic definition of success? Is Jannah. Mm. Now, you could end... I mean, look at Rasul Did he die with a lot of money? No. Right? Did he die with a, a big house or, a, or, or the equivalent of a big house? He didn't die with any of those things. Now look at all the Sahabas, the most successful Sahabas. We had some that were very... Uh, okay, Abdul Rahman ibn Awf. Yeah, everyone talks about him. Yeah. He was very... He had a lot of money and everything. But what did Aisha uh, anha say to him that he came into Jannah on his knees? But then that becomes this thing about... Then people take that as, a, as, a reason, as an excuse to fear money, which is also wrong mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. But look at... Um, who, what was it? You'll probably know this. What was the name of the Sahaba that, um, that where they said the angels were washing him? Was it Saad ibn Waqas, I think it was. Radiallahu uh, anhu. You know, and he, he didn't even have a rag to cover his knees, right? But he has success. Mm. He has a real success. And what I'm tra- and I didn't unfortunately didn't cover this enough in the first book. But what I'm really really trying to get people to understand is, even if you don't make it. In, in terms of the Western definition of success, if you don't make it to uh, to the big house and to the uh, you know to the private jet and all these things, if you grow as a person and if you've pleased Allah Taala in that process, you are successful. Mm. And look, the the, the test of um, and I'm not talking about myself here, so this is not me trying to be self-aggrandizing. But when we we know, and this comes from tradition, and what I be my, mean by tradition, because I don't have the specific reference. But when when you know when when a scholar says, and I'm not, I'm saying you know for other scholars, I'm taking it from them. When a scholar says it comes from tradition, what he means is means is that there's a reference for this somewhere in the Quran or somewhere in uh, the Sunnah, right? So they say tradition because it, it's just an umbrella term, yeah, yeah, yeah. rather than having having to find a specific reference. And the scholars say that it comes from tradition, that when Allah is pleased with you. I, uh, obviously that is success when Allah is pleased with you but the sign of that is that you, you grow in wisdom mm. right? he teaches you something as a result that is, that's a sign of success if you get a lot of money right? think about the leaders of the world right now somebody like Trump he has a lot of well, for, uh, for all intents I don't, I don't think he has a lot of money but let's just say for argument's sake mm. he has a lot of money yeah, right? Yeah. he has a lot of money but as far as I'm concerned this person is punished he is being punished by Allah Ta'ala because that his money is a test. And look at how that test, look at how he's failing in this test, right? He's ruining people and he's ruining everything. Okay? So that is a punishment. It's not a blessing. So sometimes money and, uh, you know, sometimes Allah will gift you in this world. Sometimes he will give you money and he'll give you a car and he will give you children. And sometimes that will be a blessing. But sometimes that will be a punishment. He will give you children as a punishment. It can happen because there will be a trial. And you, if you fail in that trial, then that was a punishment. Mm. But sometimes, you know, if you, if, you, if you learn something and you grow and you become wiser, then Allah is pleased with you. That's success. And mm. the only thing that's... The only, you know, the, the, we spend majority... Especially now in today's world, right? 
in today in in today's society, we spend eighty percent of our, our of our lives working because we don't just go to work at nine o'clock and finish at five. We keep on you know we keep on working, we keep on reading books, and we keep on reading articles, and we keep on yeah, it uh, never so, stops. Having our, it never stops. So therefore, the majority of our lives now is work, mm. right? So therefore, if you're going to choose a career that's going to polish you in this way to make you wiser. It's going to be entrepreneurship. It's not going to be investment banking and doctor and lawyer. And they're not going to yeah. teach you what you want to learn. In I fact, mean, if you go into banking, it's going to switch you right off because all you're going to yeah. care about is the money. You know, it's really, really amazing what you're saying because when I first started uh, kind of uh, working, I was in the corporate world. And in the corporate world, they kind of put you in this little box and they say, right, this is your job. And in this job, you just do this over and over and over and over and over again. If you change your job, then maybe you get another box, right? Um, and I... I think development was really limited there. And then when I got to uh, other places that I worked in, like smaller charities and organizations, you start to have to do everything. And then your growth and everything ex expands to another level, right? But then, and then entrepreneurship is even bigger than and that. And this is, the, this is the, like, the crazy, insane thing for me because when I left uh, working at IERA, I had done like 10, 15 years of voluntary work and corporate work and project management, all this stuff. And I thought to myself, you know what? I am, alhamdulillah, like, I, I feel like I'm nearly developed now. Right. Yeah. And I, I was like, entrepreneurship's going to come now and I'm just going to be like, no problem because I've done all this stuff. Right. And then when I got to that, I'm like, oh, my God, subhanAllah, like I thought this was going to be like this. But now I realize what this is like. And I'm like, you know, the way entrepreneurship has made me grow and develop none of those things before it did it. And that's insane for me to think about because you go through all those things and you think that's the thing. But really entrepreneurship, and I love the fact that you're suggesting it for young people as well, because I think it's something amazing for young people to yeah, learn I, from as I, well. I, I think the, I, I mean, I have the real, this thing, I have a real disdain for the modern education system because that, it just boxes you in. Mm. Before you even get to the job, you know, you have to sit in a class with, the, with all the kids of the same age group. And then you have to, um, you know, you, you have to be given a, a limited number of subjects and the whole approach is the same. And it just boxes you in and boxes you in and boxes you in. And then what you get is these things, these little kids that come out of university and they're just these little cutty cutter things, you know, that's all they are. That's, that's their life is just this little sliver. Mm. And I've, I've gotten to the point now where I can actually, before somebody even tells me, I can tell somebody, I can tell who's a true entrepreneur because you can get a sense of their spirit because their spirit is so free. You mm. see it on them straight away. They just yeah. have a very free spirit about them. Mm. Okay, yeah, fantastic. So I've got some quick fire questions because we're kind of fast running out of time, okay. right? All right. Um, so well, let's 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 keep it short with these ones. But I've got I've got a few questions I want to go through. Okay. So inshallah. So the first thing is like um, you know you you've been helping uh, organizations and businesses at different levels, start up from nothing to where there's something. Uh, I had some really great names like Buffer and other people that big companies you've helped, right? So tell me like generally like. A lot of the Muslim organizations that are out there, you know, they're at a level where they've kind of done some good stuff. Maybe they're even doing like a, a million in revenue or something like charities and this and that. What are the kind of uh, tips and ideas and, and, and kind of pointers that you have for them uh, for growth? Like what kind of things should they be thinking if, about if doing? A, if a business is doing uh, a quarter of a million, half a million or one million, something like that, generally around that one million mark. Yeah. Um, the... What I would say to businesses, those businesses, that the answers that you're looking for of what's going to take you to the next level is inside your organization. It's not outside. Mm, so if you're looking for this winning strategy that's going to come from the outside, it's not there. It's okay. inside your organization. So you have to look inside. What do you mean outside. by that? What do you mean? How do they look inside? What well, do you mean? Okay. I mean, most, I mean it's, it's actually a lot of the patterns that I've noticed because I've helped over like 300 CEOs now in the last wow. uh, 
in the last five years, it might not even be th- founders and CEOs. It's probably it, it might not even be three hundred. It might be about five hundred now. It's a big number, Oof, right? Wow. And sometimes these are only half an hour calls, forty-five minute calls. But sometimes these are long-term relationships. Okay. Yeah. And the one thing that I find constantly, I'll give you one example. There was this organization that was doing about half a million a year, and uh, they they brought me in to help them grow. And um, they were like. Uh, you know, we don't have much of a budget, but we want to go much bigger. And you know, wish we had the budget of our competitors so that we could compete with them and do this and do that and all this and everything. And um, they they really struggled. And I kept saying to them that that's not where your problem is. The ideas that you're looking for of how to make your product better, your staff already know it, right? You're not listening to them. You're not mm. listening to what they're telling you. Yeah. And the reason why you're not listening to them is because you're so scared about losing your biggest customers that what what is happening is that you're making your staff so busy serving them that you you don't want to listen to them because you're worried that they're not serving the customer which is fine in the sense that they should be serving the customer but and but you're working them so hard right that you have they they, they can't open, uh, open and also because you've got this military approach to leadership they don't feel like they can express themselves to you but they have the answers because they're facing the customer they they know they can understand the pulse of the customer the answers are already there right there in front of you we don't want to take them on. And then this, you know, and all these excuses that they were making about why their staff were leaving, they didn't want to accept the fact that they don't, this, the only reason their staff are leaving is because they don't enjoy them. They're not, they don't feel free. They feel burdened. So they want to go and look for a pastures anew. You don't want to take them, you know, you don't want to take their opinion seriously. You don't mm. value them. You don't respect them. So, so they disappear. And then your, your, your whole organization is just falling apart. Yeah, but they could give you the answers that you need. Yeah, I, I love that. I really love what you're saying about being internally because I think what I've found from working with so many Muslim organizations that a lot of the problems are with the way the leadership is doing things and the way they're kind of interacting with people and, and managing people and volunteers and all this kind of stuff. So, yeah. great, great I, advice. And all of this comes from two things. The biggest, what it comes from is the fear of risk. That's where it comes from. Because when you have this fear, right, what, what fear does to you, because the Western world, uh, the, the way the Western world approaches uh, the human psychology is that you have this conscious brain, right, yeah, which yeah. is this rational intellectual brain, and then you have a subconscious, which is this unknown entity that we only know a little bit about. But the Islamic approach was never that. The Islamic approach was you have this brain which which uh, uh, which uh, interprets information from all the senses, the eyes, the ears, the nose, you know, all your senses and everything. But your actual core of what drives who you are is the heart, mm. right? Yeah. And what fear, if you imagine what, what you know, when we would say, well, I didn't, I couldn't think because I panicked. And I, I didn't know what to do in that situation because I was in a panic situation. And I, now that I've, I've been able to step away from that particular situation, I can think a lot more clearly now. Mm. What is happening in that situation is that the fear basically grips your heart and it tightens it. And when your heart gets tight and you can't think, Right. But if you, if you extrapolate that backwards, if you've got a lot of fear, your heart is gripped like this. But if you've got a little bit of fear, it's still a, grip, a little bit gripped. So when you have the fear of risk, what's happening is that your, your heart is gripped. And in that moment, you cannot think rationally. You mm. can't do it. And, so it. and so this becomes this uh, uh, perpetual thing where you're, you're not thinking about... The, you, the, the reason why I'm able to think about the bigger picture isn't because I've had this amazing training uh, by some, you know, some management scholar or, or, or any of these things. It's because I've been teaching myself to, uh, to uh, expand my heart more and more and more. It's to, to break free right, of, of those fears. That's what allows you to think about the bigger picture. Mm. Right? Now, these guys, 
if they learned to to break free from that and start, then they'll build see the bigger picture. And they're built to see how they're harming themselves. They're built to see it. It's just to let go of the fear. And these guys are working around the clock, and think they just need to hustle more and more and more and more. Is just because it's a fear of risk. That's all it is. Mm. It's not anything else. Okay. That's really good. So tell me, if I'm a uh, like a leader or or like CEO, like. What are three books that you really kind of recommend to people that you've read and you think that they should go through? So, uh, I w- uh, Peter Drucker, a b- book called Essential Drucker by Peter Drucker. So, it's, it's an amalgamation of all his uh, best works, all his classics. And what he w- was writing in the 50s it still applies today. And he, okay. was, he wrote that in the 50s. Excellent. He was a management scholar uh, from Germany and he, he was around the time of World War II and he saw how life was changing and everything. Absolutely, um, it's an amazing book. You can figure, finish it in a very uh, short space of time. I spent nine years reading that book. So I, I would read a couple of pages. That's a long book. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it, I, I, took, I just read it very, very slowly. I'd read a couple mm. of pages, yeah. go in there, go out there, implement it, and then come back and read a couple of oh, more, and then, you know, basically that way. Okay. That's one. Another book is called The Darqawi Way, which is by a sheikh called Sheikh Darqawi. Darqawi Way. Okay. The Darqawi way. Yep. Um, it's uh, it's been translated from Moroccan Arabic into English. It's 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 not that easy to read just because of the translation, and it's got a couple of weird bits. What I would just say to people: just just gloss over the weird weird bits <laughs> yeah. and don't uh, pay more att- too much attention to those. But there's a, there's a series of his letters to his students, and I'll tell you something else that was really interesting: is Sheikh a murid. Uh, what I've understood: there's a murid of Sheikh Darqawi, and he was. The Sheikh of Sultan Abdul Hamid at the mm. time that Sultan Abdul Hamid was in power. Wow. Okay. So it, this Sheikh is a very important Sheikh. So the Darqawi way. Okay. Good. The Darqawi way. And the third um, one. And there's a book that I'm reading at the moment that I haven't finished at the at the moment, but it's called The Way of Muhammad by Sheikh Abdul Qadir Sufi. Hmm. The Way that of Muhammad. That is uh, that is the book. That okay. is the book. Basically, what he's done with that book is all the great scholars. So Imam Ghazali, uh, you know, Rumi, Ibn Arabi, um, uh, all these great scholars, and all the, the science and discipline of Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and, you know, uh, Ali ibn Abdul Talib, radiallahu anhu, what, he, what he's done is he's taken all of that, mm-hmm. right? But he's considered the, the, he's considered the fact that that context was a little bit different that they found themselves in at that time. So you look at Rumi, for example, right? Rumi had the Khilafah around him. Mm. He, uh, you know, there's certain things that he could say that people would just understand. It just made sense, yeah. right? But well, we've lost all of that now. So what Sheikh Abdul Qadir has done is he's written, he's, he's basically written what they've said. But interpreted it for today's context in the context of capitalism mm-hmm. and uh, uh, you know the Western philosophy and all that. So he's written it with that vernacular. So he's just basically picked up everything that they've said and, and made it relevant. Back. Yeah, made it relevant. That's all he's done. So he's not changed anything that they've said. He's just made it relevant, and it is a real eye opener. And, and that book's going to take me a year to read, I think, because I'm reading one page at a time of that as well. Excellent. It's a, it is. It is the, the book. Okay. Excellent. Absolutely fantastic. Great. So tell me, uh, last kind of question for you, um, tell me a little bit about tools, apps, resources, things that help you to be more productive, help you in your life, and like, what are some of the big tools, apps, uh, resources? Uh, two two main apps that I use, number one is Quip, which is, a, a, it's like Google Docs. Quip. Right. Yeah, but I prefer Quip over Google Docs. Is that Q-U-I-P, yeah? 
Yeah, just like okay. when you. Yeah, it was a. It was a former. Uh, it was a former engineer, a CT, the CTO of Facebook. He left and then he set Quip up. Um, and I just really like it. I, I put all my company documents in there. My company uh, operation manuals and everything. They're all in there. Why do you prefer it to Google Docs? It's just a lot more slick. Mm, okay. It's more minimalistic than Google Docs. Google Docs is a lot more kitchen sink. This is a lot more uh, just purely focused on the writing and the collaborative aspect of it. So it's very good at collaboration. Um, but you, you can't do a lot more with it in like stylization and all those kind of things. So I, I really like it. I know everybody that I've recommended it to always just really loves it. Okay, it's got good. a very nice mobile experience as well. Great. So Quip is one. Anything else? Uh, App Block, on, uh, which is only available. I think it's only available on Android phones. App Block. Yeah. What does that so do? what I do is I have a schedule between uh, uh, like you know ten o'clock during the day till about five o'clock in the afternoon. So it lets me get into WhatsApp and onto Facebook. And if and if people want to send me a, a WhatsApp message or Facebook, it will notify me. You know, I'll get notified and everything. But after five or six o'clock, when I finish working, all those it's notifications get blocked, and I can't even go into the app. So wow. I can't get distracted by going in. Okay, excellent. And, and it's not as good as I'd like it to be. I would like it to be even better. I'd like it to be able to individually block uh, users within WhatsApp, for example. <laughs> you know, yeah. that tend to annoy me. You know, yeah. people messaging me at 11 o'clock at night, but it's not able. I wish it could go that that far. Yeah. Okay, great. Fantastic. So last question i got for you before we kind of close. Which question should I have asked you that I haven't? Uh, which question should you have asked me that you have? Or is have? there anything else that you want to share or tell us about that? You know, we haven't really kind of gone into. Uh, one TV, uh, a TV series and a book that I had no idea was going to change my life. Mm -hmm. Two. Uh, and I didn't recommend this because I wanted to recommend stuff that was a bit more uh, leadership and everything. So the TV series that changed my life was Earth to Grill. Okay. Or Ertrul, <laughs> um, and I and I always say to people that if you don't watch Ertrul, you're not Muslim. That's why I always say to people. <laughs> it's a joke, by the way. <laughs> what? That's a joke, by the way. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, you just killed off half the Ummah, bro. They're, they're gone. They're now in Jahannam forever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, so it's a must-watch right. show, right? Yeah. Okay. It's a must-watch. And just put up with it. It doesn't. I don't care how boring it is. Don't, I don't care about the subtitles. Uh, yeah, just just watch it. Yeah. And what I would say to you is, when you get to the end of season one, you're Muslim. When you get to the end of season two, you're an Imam. And when you get to the end of season five, you're a Sheikh. <laughs> that's what I would say to you, right? Yeah. So it has levels, okay. But you'll understand what I mean when you get to season three. You will understand why I'm saying that, okay. And yes, it's a joke, but you you will understand. There's some truth to why I'm saying this as well, okay. Okay. Right. Okay. So um, that's one. The other thing is uh, is a book called Forty Rules of Love. Forty now, this Rules book, of Love. Okay, interesting. Okay, now this book, right? It's been talked about a lot um, over the last few years. The author of it did a TED talk, so she did a talk, and my my wife was watching it, and I saw the talk, and I was like, eh. I just, I, I didn't really, um, I, I didn't care. And I, I don't read um, uh, fiction. I'm not a fiction reader. So I only read uh, non-fiction, okay? And you'll find most businessy types that read non-fiction. Yeah, uh, they read yeah, uh, non-fiction. Yeah. Okay. But anyway, um, and I'll, I'll tell you a really interesting story about this book. So we went to this cafe, me and my wife went to this cafe, which is another cafe that I'm going to take, take you to, by the way. Sure right? So we went to this cafe and we sat there and my wife's like, I'm going to read a book. So I'm not going to talk to you while I'm reading this book. So and I was like, that's fine. I'll just drink my coffee and I'll just I'm just going to browse Reddit or whatever, right? And she goes, well, 
I've got this book here if you want to read it. And I was like, no, I don't want to read it. But my wife is very, very good at subtly being able to persuade me. She's, she's a master at this, right? She's a master, she's a master at subtle persuasion, right? Yeah. Absolute master. She's like, well, you might just want to read one page. It's up to you. So like, whatever. So anyway, um, I was like, okay, I'll read one page just to satisfy you. Okay. She gave me the book. I read one page. Right. And then for the rest of that week, I didn't do anything else. I didn't watch TV. I didn't eat food. I didn't do my work. I didn't call my parents. I didn't do my laundry. I didn't go for a walk. All I did was just read that book. Wow. Okay. And I finished that book and I could not, I've not had an experience like that in 25 years. Oof. That's a big recommendation, bro. That is a big recommendation. I, this is the thing, right? Here's the thing with this book, right? I am like chick flick. This is going to be some chicky flicky, romancy, blah, 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 and all of this. And there are some elements of that book that do have that going on. It does have it, right? Mm. And I, I didn't like that. But it basically is a story about... It's, it's basically the account of when Shams of Tabriz met Rumi. Wow, it's, okay. That, that's what the book is about. And it just sucked me in. That you, I mean, it was better than Avengers. And it was. Be, I mean, I don't watch Game of Thrones, but it was better than Game of Thrones. It was better than all these things. But here's the most fascinating thing about this book. My wife's cousin, she uh, 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 was going to um, uh, uh, Turkey. And I, I didn't actually... I kind of knew this, but I'd forgotten this. She was going to Turkey, and I had said to her that if you, because they were going to do this tour of Soth and all this kind of stuff and everything, right? So at the girl's tomb and everything. And I said, look, because uh, I said, look, I don't know if this is a thing or not, and I don't want to get into Shirki territory and everything, but I have heard this, because I've read about this in the Darkawi way and things. So I said, but I've heard that this is a thing. So just on the off chance that it is, can you please, give, because I know we do this for Rasul anyway, so can you please give my salam to at the girl, right? Okay. When you go to his tomb, yeah. she said, "She said, yeah, I'll I'll do that for you." Okay. She, when they came back, she goes to me. She goes, uh, her and her husband. They said, "We never, uh, we didn't." Uh, I I can't remember if they said they'd given it to Ertugrul or not, but I think they said they had they didn't make it to his tomb or something, right? But they said we did go to Rumi's tomb, and we made a dua for you while we were there, and we gave him your salam. And I said, "Okay, when was that? When did that take place?" I said, "Oh, it would have been uh, Sunday afternoon, uh, like around about this time." And I was like, well, that's interesting because I started reading his book at exactly the same time. <laughs> okay. Is that weird? That is weird. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it might just be a coincidence, but it was like, whoa. But that book was amazing. It was, so who's, it who's was, that book by? The 40, is it 40 Rules of Love? Or? It's 40 Rules of Love by a lady called Elif Shafak. Now, I, I do want to qualify. There are some elements to that book that are going to make you feel like, what the hell? And I would just say, just gloss over it. I, I, I don't know why it's in there. I don't know why that, what that is about. It's just there. Just take it with a pinch of salt. Overall, just take the good and leave the bad is what I'm going to say. But overall, it's a very nice experience. I, there's a brother um, from Peshawar, right? That he read my book and he really loved my book. And he was asking me for a recommendation and I, I told him to read it. And he was, I mean, he was like, oh my God, what the hell is this book? He, he, was, he loved it. He absolutely loved it. But then I, he, he was conflicted by the end. He was like, but what about this and what about this? And I was like, look, I, I don't know what to tell you. You just have to, you just have to ignore that. I mean, I don't, I don't know what to say. Because okay. there, there are multiple interpretations and translations of what happened with Shams and Rumi. So there are, there are varying accounts. So I'm just going to give it the benefit of the doubt. But it, it, I, you know what? If I had $100 million in my bank account, yeah, I would go and make that movie. That's what I would, I would turn that <laughs> That's what I would do. Favorite sure. joking. 
Okay, great. So, so that's it. That's what we're gonna see from Khurub next. We're gonna see this massive just, movie. Just pick the off for me because I really, really want to do this. Man, I'll make it easy for you. Okay, excellent, bro. Khurub, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's actually been a pleasure spending time with you, bro, because we don't get to spend enough time. I think. Um, no, so that's your fault. Not yeah, mine. that is. I take all the responsibility. Zakhlakhet for all your time and all the wonderful advice you gave us. Really, really uh, useful things, and it's wonderful to get. Uh, a different perspective and, and learn from all your failures and all your mistakes and all the great things that you've kind of uh, researched as well. So I know everyone that's that's watching, they're gonna they're gonna love it, inshallah. Uh, and and you've you really really played your part, alhamdulillah, in them becoming uh, better leaders and better inshallah. CEOs, inshallah. Brothers and sisters, uh, this is the Muslim CEO show. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you haven't already done so, please remember to subscribe to our channel. And of course, you should check out the free training at MuslimCEO.com. Jazakumullah khair, khurum once again. Inshallah, we'll see you guys soon. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Wa alaikum